The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today, as we read Jesus speaking about prayer, I'm not going to go into the Lord's Prayer as he gives it to us. I have dealt with that in a lot of detail on other occasions, but I am specially interested in what our Lord has to say from verses 5 and following as we listen to him speaking in Luke 11. Here's God's Word. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, and by the way, this is only one of several forms in which the Lord's Prayer is given. You'll notice not everything's here. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friends, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, Yet, because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give as much as he needs. And so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is God's holy word. We don't have young children in our home anymore, have not for some years now. Our four children are all adults, with most of them have their own children. But one of the things I remember when our children were small was what would happen most years near Christmas. At least for several years, we got in the habit of encouraging the children to write us a Christmas wish list in early December. Now, this wasn't Santa Claus. We didn't send it anywhere. We never even talked about Santa Claus that I can recall. They knew where the gifts were coming from, but we thought it would be a good exercise for them to just say, well, here's what I'd like to get, mom or dad. And we did tell them, of course, resources were limited. They wouldn't get everything. And But tell us, and we'll take it into consideration. I vividly recall one year when our twins, our twin boys, were seven. One of them was present this morning when I was saying this little thing. I don't know if I embarrassed him, but uh, they were seven years old, and I think I had given the limited resources, you can't get everything speech. 
And uh, so we came and found two scrawled-on sheets of notebook paper taped to our bedroom door, Christmas list, Dan and Ben. And obviously they had worked on prioritizing because there were things scratched out that they had originally written and then crossed out. I guess they thought we shouldn't press Dad too far. Now, he, he was pretty strict about this. And then they underlined the things that they definitely wanted attention given to. In fact, they wrote main thing, M-A-N-E, main thing. I always remember that. And we did give consideration to their wishes and did try to fulfill their their desires as we were able. But of course, as parents, we also gave some of those good and perfect gifts like socks and sweaters and blue jeans and winter jackets, the things that kids open and quickly toss aside to get to the Star Wars toys and the hockey sticks and the good stuff. Well, I'm not sure entirely how much relevance kids' wish lists and prayer have to do with one another, but yet I think there are some parallels, good or bad. A prominent issue in prayer, of course, and it's not really emphasized in the text today, is is that prayer begins with adoration. And if you don't come to God with praise and adoration for who He is and thanksgiving for what He's done, you really haven't prayed. And of course, the model prayer of the Lord's Prayer begins that way. Father, holy is Your name. Now, there's a sermon right there. And I have preached on that one statement. Holy is your name. And that's where we should begin. But then, of course, we do go to petitions. And the Lord's Prayer goes to petitions. So there's not, we're not saying petitions are wrong. We're just saying it's not all that prayer is. And when we think of the area of petitions that I think Jesus narrows in on from verses 5 and following here in Luke 11, he's telling us to be careful that we would recognize that all our petitions begin as immature, perhaps even sinful, certainly self-centered things, which might very well, in fact probably will, have to be revised or maybe even refused in God's response to us. But we come to one, the text is emphasizing, who always knows how to give us something better than what we ask for. Now, you see here in, in Luke eleven five to 8, this short parable about a householder borrowing food, rousing his neighbor who has to be really prodded to finally do what a good neighbor should do. Then another short parable tied in, verses 11 to 13, about human fathers giving good gifts, even though they're sinful and their judgment is limited. I want to explore these three points with you today in this text quickly. The boldness of God's family the excellence of God's gifts, and God's how much more principle. First of all, the boldness of God's family in 5 through 8 of Luke 11. And you need to know some things about travel. I think you probably assume these things, but let me just remind you, the travel was completely different in those times. It was done on foot. You had no telephones, not even a good mail service to to mail ahead, you know, to Cousin John and three towns over, that you were going to undertake a journey and you would hope to stop at his home. And there wasn't a holiday inn. There were inns of some kinds, but they really weren't, for the most part, very desirable or reliable places or even very clean places where you would want to be. So if there was a relative or a friend, you would plan to arrive at their home. And 
This was done in the culture, and it was expected. Now, Americans don't just pop in. We don't do that, do we? We certainly wouldn't show up at except in a dire emergency at a relative or or a close friend's house and say, here I am at 9 o'clock at night. I'm expecting to stay the night. We just wouldn't do that. But in a day when you travel on foot in a hot weather, you have to travel late in the day to avoid the sun as much as possible. This happened commonly. It was a very common thing. Now, you have to blend in the idea that also in first century society, it was very important that you show hospitality. You were evaluated and and treasured as a person, as a friend and a relative by your hospitality. If you were rude or even if you, you didn't bring out the best when guests came, that wasn't good. Now, obviously, there's no 24 hour mini market for you to visit if somebody arrives and the next day was going to be your shopping day. That's the dilemma Jesus is talking about. For groceries, you go to your neighbor, of course. And in that society, your neighbor was expected to help you because he could very well be the one in that same situation soon after. I think Jesus told this exaggerated story about this man who was so reluctant to come to the door with a bit of humor. I think his tongue was in his cheek in a manner of speaking. He knew that that it would be very unlikely that any neighbor would act like that. He was saying, here's the worst possible example you could ever think of your neighbor, and even he would respond and help you. And people would chuckle and say, well, sure he would, because he would know that next time he was going to be the one looking for help. Now, one of the real problems with this little mini parable is people take it as a comparison, not in one, but in two areas. It's meant as a comparison to you and I. It's meant to say how we are to be bold in going to God. And right after it, Jesus says, so are you meant to boldly go to God. Why? Because the Scripture says you are His children by faith. You have a privileged relationship. Go boldly. Ask continually. Ask fervently. And know that you you take advantage of something better than just neighborliness, a deep relationship with God as Father. I well remember the beginning of the Kennedy years. I was a teenager when John Kennedy came into the White House with his cute little adorable children. And Life magazine loved it when scenes would happen like little, what was it, John, John, and can't think of the daughter's name at the moment, but anyway, the two of them would come in and interrupt a cabinet meeting. And of course, the president would say, okay, let him in. Well, he knew there was a photographer there. This was a great photo op. And here was Caroline, John, John, and Caroline romping in the cabinet room with all the cabinet officers looking on with amused smiles. The most important governmental council of our land And toddlers were allowed to interrupt it. Why? Because of a privileged relationship. This passage is saying something like that. Be bold with your father. You won't be shut out. You won't get a sorry closed for business sign. Keep on. The the verbs here for ask and seek and knock are verbs that are in the continuous tense. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because you are sure to see a response. Now, what this text is not giving us is a comparison to God to the reluctant householder. Don't ever think that. That's not here. What is here, in fact, is a contrast. 
How much different is your God than this guy who wouldn't bother to get out of bed? God's not like him. God is his opposite. He is willing. He is waiting. He is ready to indulge that privileged relationship with you and meet your needs and meet you in the relationship of prayer. The boldness of God's family is the first emphasis. But secondly, without dwelling long on these, the excellence of God's gifts comes out. The excellence of God's gifts, verses 11 to 13. You see, so many people still have the idea that prayer is giving God information that he needs so he can learn things. God does not learn from your prayers. God does not change because of your prayers. God receives in prayer that which he already knows, but so much desires to hear from you in order to be bound in a relationship of dependency on your part with him. One theologian said it this way, I quote him, perfect love loves to be told what it knows already. And the all-wise Father wants to be asked for what he longs to give. Now, you see, this touches the mystery of prayer. People say, if I'm not changing God's mind, then why am I praying? They have a very human-oriented idea. You know, prayer is for me to get God straightened out, to get God on my agenda, to inform God. Well, it isn't. We're never taught that. We're never taught that we change God. God is, is eternal in his mind, in his planning, in his decrees. He knows what he intends to do. And when I say that, people say, oh, well, then why pray? Why pray? If I can't change him, why pray? Well, there's a mystery in what I answer. But the answer is that God appears so many times to seem to withhold his best until we pray. You see, Your prayer is part of his will. It's part of the means by which he wants to release his best gifts to you, very much as if you would say, God plans to heal somebody. But the means by which he's going to heal somebody are antibiotics or chemotherapy or surgery or whatever. And it's still God superintending the healing, but he's using means. Prayer mysteriously appears to release the blessing of God. And we could say, though, in another way, it's blessing he always intends to give, but he waits for you to ask, and he knows that you will ask. We can't explain this. There's a mystery there. You know, the ultimate, I heard somebody say once, the ultimate reason to pray is because Jesus commands it. If God commands us to do something, shouldn't we do it? Not because it works, because it's a mechanism, because it's a coin-operated machine that you put something in and pull the crank and something you want falls out. No. It's a mysterious, marvelous relationship in which you show dependency before your Father, and He shows you His open hands of blessing. Jesus gave that wonderful statement in John 15, 7 that mystifies many when He said, "'Ask whatever you will in my name,' and you have it. Now, you see, most people listen to that, and they listen to it selectively, and here's what they think it says. Ask whatever you will, and you have it. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, ask whatever you will in my name, and you have it. Now, what's the difference? The difference is Jesus is saying, 
When you learn to ask as I would ask my Father, when you ask the Father what I would ask Him for in your place, you can't help but have it. For my Father's will and my will are one, and He would certainly give what I asked Him for. It's all you say, oh, now, there's, now it's a trick. It's like a contract with fine print. How can I know what Jesus would ask? Well, you can, at least to a large degree, if you're in tune with the Word of God, if you're humbled before Him and, not, and your boldness isn't the boldness of arrogance that says to God, you better give me, come on, you better come up with the deal you promised, God, and give me what I want right now. That's not the boldness He's talking about. We are absolutely never promised that every whim of our fancy will be granted to us, and I am so glad we're not. Many requests that I have of God are foolish. They're uninformed. I'm sometimes asking for things that would be disastrous for myself or someone else or for the whole church. But God invites me into this process of prayer and says, keep on asking, Keep on knocking, keep on seeking, and guess what I'm going to do while you're doing all that? I'm going to keep on shaping you and whittling away and forming and molding so that tomorrow you're going to ask a little differently, and maybe three weeks later you're going to ask even better, and you're going to come closer to understanding my will as you wait on me and ask me. I don't think there is unanswered prayer. I've been asked the question before, what about unanswered prayer? Somebody poses it as if to say, here's the position that will knock down your Christianity. I don't have any problem with that at all. I don't think there is unanswered prayer. I think this passage says all prayer is answered in one way or another. God may refuse. God may say this isn't the time. He may lead me to a reshaping and a remolding and a better understanding until I come in contact with what it is he's, he's going to do, and then I will praise Him all the more for showing me that. Unanswered prayer? No. Just prayer that the answer hasn't been recognized yet. That's what it's all about. Back in the 50s, I, I think I was an addict of a corny TV show, Father Knows Best. If I went back and watched that today, I would think it's probably the corniest thing in the world. But I remember the show, a son and two daughters and the mother in this antiseptic 50s home, and, and the son always did some foolish thing, or the daughter did something, and there was a little ruckus, and, and then dad would come home at the end of the day, and, and he'd give his calming, assuring words that everything was going to be right and so on. Robert Young, I think, was the dad, if I remember correctly. Father knows best. Well, do you see how Jesus said that here? He said, you receive things in response to prayer, and you look at them and you say, what's that? That's not what I asked for. And Jesus uses these comparisons. What father of you? You are sinful fathers, but if your son asks for a fish, are you going to give him a poisonous serpent? Now, the point is, a snake and a fish could look alike. They're similar, at least. And, and possibly you could mistake one for the other. Or if he asks for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? The Bible experts say you need to see a desert scorpion to understand this. It curls up in a shell, kind of tan colored, and it looks just like an Amish brown egg. 
took me a long time, by the way, in Lancaster County to, to wonder why every Amish farm says brown eggs for sale. Didn't understand what was so great about brown. And I'm told I've got to learn to pronounce it brown eggs. Brown eggs. But, you know, a tan egg, the shell of an egg, and the scorpion. And you could say, oh, that's just an egg. It's good to eat. No, it's a scorpion. It'll bite. It'll hurt you. Jesus is saying your father doesn't trick you. He doesn't give bad things that are going to tear your life apart or hurt you. It may look like he's not doing what you're asking. And you and I pray for things and and we say, okay, God, here's the order. You know, here's what I want. Here's what I need. I'll be good and go to church for five years if you do this. We bargain, you know. And then we come back and we say, Lord, didn't I make myself clear to you? Weren't you listening? It appears like you did the opposite thing that I told you would be good for me. Oh, I think we're usually not that arrogant with God, but we think that way. But if we would look back in six months or a year, or sometimes it takes longer, five years, we would look and say, why didn't God give me that when I asked for it? And we can see wouldn't have been right at all. I didn't understand what was best. He gave me this hard thing that I had to go through. And you know what? When I trusted him in that, he brought a a whole different result than I could have guessed at. James chapter 4 verse 18 tells us why many of our petitions are not granted. James wrote, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. You say, oh, well, I'm not pleasures. Well, At least what you're asking is, God, make me comfortable. God, make me safe. I want to be comfortable and safe. And a lot of times he's going to push you into places that are not comfortable and not safe because he wants you to grow. And he knows you will as you go into those places and trust him. The same book of James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He knows from beginning to end what's right, what's best, what's for your good. Therefore, your petition in Jesus' name must be, Father, I want your... Here's what I think should happen. It looks like this to me, and so I ask you for this. But Lord, when I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm saying, I must, I could very well have it wrong. Lord, I'm ignorant, I'm sinful, my vision is clouded. Give me your best and give me the patience to wait for it and the wisdom to recognize it when it comes. Now, finally, we have this how much more principle, as I call it in verse 13. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I used to read this and think, wait a minute. He'll give the Holy Spirit. Who said I was asking for the Holy Spirit? I was asking for a better job. I was asking to pass the final exam that I haven't studied for. I was was asking for my disease to be healed. I was asking for my child to recover from this difficulty. I wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Can it be Jesus has got a real lesson packed into those words? Stop and think. I don't have time to give you a whole concept of the Holy Spirit here in one minute, but the Holy Spirit is the most tremendous gift that God has to give. 
When he gives his spirit, he gives himself. The Holy Spirit is the presence of the Father and the Son in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us alive from deadness in sin to be born again in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who illumines our eyes to understand the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us strength and encouragement and perseverance. It's the Holy Spirit who's called the comforter and the guide. You see, God doesn't have a better gift to give than the Spirit. His Holy Spirit is the channel of every good thing He does in our lives. So when Jesus says He'll give the Spirit, He's saying, I will come. My Father will come. We'll be with you. We'll work in you. We'll perfect you. We'll mold you. We'll transform you. Oh, what a gift is the Holy Spirit. You know, I have a list in front of me in my notes that I overestimated what I'd have time to say. I had four examples of how much more kind of issues, and I'm only going to give you one. But think of Abraham, for example, when he brought God kind of a lame prayer request. Remember, he'd been told, you'll be the father of many nations. That was decades ago. Now he's moved on into his 90s. No natural child between him and his wife. Abraham comes to God, almost a last plea. says, God, I know you were going to make me father of nations. Obviously, I'm not going to have a child in my 90s. Sarah's not going to have a child at this point. I have this son called Ishmael. If only Ishmael would be the fulfillment of your promise. In other words, God, do this thing. I've got a lame proposition for you. I hope you'll fulfill it. And the Lord said, no way. I'm going to work miraculously. And my promise is going to be so amazing to you, you will not believe it. It was in Ephesians 3.20, how much more working of God in Abraham's life when God says, or Paul wrote, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly. He didn't just say abundantly. He said exceeding abundantly. Abundantly multiplied many times beyond all you ask or think. We come to God and we say, I really could use some crumbs from your table. And he says, no, I'm not in the crumb business. I've got some warm, fresh loaves for you to eat from. But you're going to have to receive them as I give them. They're going to look different, maybe even taste different. But they'll be from me. You see, one of the things we do absolutely wrong about prayer, I'm convinced, is we compare it to ordering things. We do a lot of this today. Online, from catalogs, uh, we do a lot of our shopping without going. We don't like stores, basically. We, if we can buy something without a store, that's good. So we'll call up L.L. Bean, and I'll say, L.L. Bean, they, man, they answer right away. They even know it's me calling. I guess they've got me in their gold star directory or something. And, and hello, Michael, and... Uh, I say, I want a shirt, and here's the shirt. It's green and red plaid, and, uh, you know, I need this size, and I want it shipped this way, and here's the sleeve length, and so on, and boom, they go into action. Now, how am I going to judge L.L. Bean based on that phone call? I'm going to judge them based on how fast it gets there. You know, it shouldn't take three weeks. Either three days would be better. And uh, when I get it, does it look like what it looked like in the catalog or online? Is it the right size? Does it fit? And am I satisfied? Yay, I'm happy. Good job, L.L. Bean. Do you know we treat prayer that way? We do. 
We say, God, okay, I need this, size this, delivered tomorrow would be nice, uh, and this is exactly the way I want it. And then we go and silently tell people God doesn't really answer prayer. Why can we not learn to say, Father, here is my needy situation. I come to you because I'm your child. You told me to come. I have a bold entree to you. I have a pass to your throne. I come now. I'm ignorant. I'm not sure what I need, but I submit my situation to you. Lord, work in my situation. Show me what I need. Do what needs to be done here that I cannot do and help me to trust you, to wait for you, and to recognize what you're doing. That's the way Christians are taught to pray. And then to believe that what will come is exceeding abundantly above what we could even ask or think. Let the prayers of God's redeemed people in Christ rise up. The Scripture has a place where it compares to our prayers as rising like smoke from an altar. You ever think of our church that way? The prayers of God's people in home fellowship groups, in worship services, in Bible studies, in informal gatherings around family tables, rising like incense from the altar to the throne of God. He delights in them. He delights in the scent of your prayers. He delights to know that his people are actively depending on Yes, he even delights in your Christmas wish lists as long as you realize that he's going to use a father's all wisdom to sort it out and give you the best things and nothing else. How great he is. We thank our God for being a prayer-answering God. Our Father, we ask that you keep teaching us to pray. We know so little. We should know more. We practice so little. Keep us dependent before you. And while you tell us to be bold in coming to you, may we not be arrogant in insisting that you haven't answered if you haven't done it our way. Father, some folks need to do real business with you in prayer. Meet them. Thrill them with what you will do in their lives as they wait upon you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.